0: Grammar Girl here. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about capitalizing time periods. The rundown on less versus fewer, it's probably not as simple as you think, and a tidbit about where we get the phrase, the bee's knees. Eras and time periods with specific names are capitalized. For example, the Bronze Age, the Middle Ages, the Jazz Age, the Roaring Twenties, and the Renaissance. Those are all capitalized because they're the specific names of time periods, historical periods, or ages. You don't capitalize the word THE, so in THE Jazz Age, THE is lowercase, but you capitalize the rest of each of those names. On the other hand, if the name is simply descriptive, keep it lowercase. Examples from the AP Stylebook and the Chicago Manual of Style that stay lowercase except for the name of the country include ancient Greece. Ancient is lowercase, Greece is capitalized. Classical Rome. Classical is lowercase. The colonial period, the whole thing is lowercase. And the antebellum period, that whole thing is lowercase too. When you're writing about centuries, the words also remain lowercase. But there's a difference between AP and Chicago style. In AP style, you use the number 17th. And in Chicago style, you write out the word 17th. But either way, you keep the word century lowercase. And that was your quick and dirty tip. Now, on to less versus fewer. If you want a simple rule, the difference between less and fewer is straightforward. The traditional advice is that fewer is for things you count, and less is for things you don't count. You can count M&Ms, glasses of water, and potatoes. So you eat fewer M&Ms, serve fewer glasses of water, and buy fewer potatoes for the salad. You can't count candy, water, or potato salad. So you eat less candy, observe that the lake has less water, and make less potato salad for the next potluck. As I said, that's the simple rule and the one you'll hear most often. But another way to think about the difference that also takes care of some of the exceptions to the simple rule is to use less for singular nouns and fewer for plural nouns. And the Chicago Manual of Style recommends using the singular or plural framework. For easy nouns, it works the same way. Candy, water, and potato salad are all singular and you use less. Less candy, less water, and less potato salad. M&Ms, glasses of water, and potatoes are all plural, and you use fewer. Fewer M&Ms, fewer glasses of water, and fewer potatoes. But time, money, distance, and weight are often listed as exceptions to the traditional can-you-count-it rule, because they take less, even though you can count them. But when you use the singular or plural rule, time, money, distance, and weight all fall in line, Although $1,000 is certainly countable—a bank teller will do it for you gladly—we routinely ignore that fact and think of them as singular amounts. He believes $1,000 is a lot of money. She says that 50 miles is a long drive for ice cream. We think 12 hours is too much time to spend on the road, and if they're singular, they take less. We had less than $1,000 in the bank. We're less than 50 miles away, and I can fix the roof in less than 12 hours. Using the singular or plural rule also explains another exception. People often think phrases such as one less banana are wrong because you can count bananas. But one less banana is actually correct because it's singular and you use less with singular nouns. One less banana and similar phrases put you in a tricky situation because they're correct, but many people think they're wrong. For example, I got grammar-related complaints after Gardasil launched its one-less-person-affected-with-HPV ads because many people thought it was grammatically incorrect. Therefore, I recommend avoiding the construction whenever possible. It's better to rewrite your sentence than to have people think you've made a mistake or to knowingly use the wrong word by writing one fewer of something. You really can't win whether you write one less banana or one fewer banana. Someone's going to think you're wrong. So rewrite. Instead of telling your caterer we need one less banana in the fruit bowl, avoid the controversial sentence by asking her to take one banana out of the fruit bowl. Finally, the simple and ubiquitous grocery store signs that read 10 items or less aren't the clear-cut abomination that many people believe them to be. I know. It's shocking. Although Garner's Modern American Usage says that 10 items or fewer is the correct choice, other reference books such as Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of English Usage and The Cambridge Guide to English Usage note that the admonition that writers should not use less for countable items is relatively new beginning is the personal opinion of one usage writer from the 1700s. And the Oxford English Dictionary has examples of less being used with countable items going back nearly to the dawn of printed English and continuing to this day. I find it particularly impressive that the first citation of less being used with a countable noun in the OED comes from King Alfred the Great himself. He was the great promoter of English over Latin. He is a really big deal in the history of English. Without him, we may not even be speaking English today. And in the year 888, he wrote about less words. Language researchers tend to believe that using less with some countable nouns is natural and the restriction against doing so is constructed and forced. For example, Mark Liberman reported on the linguistic site Language Log that in real writing, both from Google News and the web in general, instances of n votes or less far exceeded n votes or fewer. Second, as with less and fewer, the word much is generally used for things you can't count, and many is used for things you can count. But it's equally acceptable at the grocery store to ask both, how much can I bring through this line? Is this too much? Or how many can I bring through this line? To me, the how much questions sound more natural, which would imply that we think of our items on the conveyor belt as a single, uncountable mass of groceries rather than countable items. But you can make an argument for either. What I ask is not that you use 10 items or less in your own writing. It carries even more risk than using the one less banana construction. What I ask is that the next time you see a sign that reads 10 items or less, instead of getting upset about the sign, recognize that this isn't a black and white issue and save your anger for something about which we can all agree that the people who go through that line with 40 items For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. For the final tidbit, I'm going to tell you about the bee's knees. And I had a blast researching this topic because it took me back to the Jazz Age and the Roaring Twenties, which you will remember from the Quick and Dirty Tip, both should be capitalized. Oxford Dictionaries says the bee's knees first appeared, quote, in the late 18th century when it was used to mean something very small and insignificant, unquote. The earliest publication I could find on my own that referred to the bee's knees was an issue of the Saturday Evening Post published in 1917, and it used the phrase in an article explaining why certain fine families didn't make it to a theater show. At that time, it seemed to mean something delicious or rare. Here's the sentence. It is uncomfortable and undignified to stand in line after dining on bees' knees and other rare dishes, especially if you're all dolled up. Just a few years later, by the early 1920s, it had come to be used how we use it today, to describe something delightful. And I was delighted to find a language column in the 1922 Spokesman Review that specifically addressed the phrase. The article is titled, Slang of Today, Talk of Tomorrow, Bees Knees and Cats Pajamas Already Giving Way to Latest Flapperies. Here are a few separate paragraphs from the article. Quote, Every generation has its language, and it's an axiom that the slang of one generation is the common speech of the next. It's well within the memory of people not so old today when stunt was absolutely new in the vocabulary of the young. Last year, the bee's knees and the cat's pajamas came in for attention of the young, and this year brings its crop of foolish words. The jazz hounds of this generation loved to use the long and ugly adjectives like revolting, nauseating, and disgusting. Vile is a favorite word also, and lurid has its admirers. So the bee's knees and the cat's pajamas were hot slang around 1921, and I only wish that the article had a byline because I'd love to acknowledge the author, It's rare for me to come across something that so specifically pinpoints something I'm researching. Also, there's a lot more 1920s slang in the article, so I'll put a link in the transcript at quickanddirtytips.com for people who want to read more. Then in 1923, a huge and influential music publishing firm called Leo Feist released a song called Bee's Knees, which seems likely to have helped the phrase stick in people's minds. I found a snippet of the sheet music, which I'll also put on the website. And Teresa Rinalda, a friend and an actress and visual artist, sang it for me so we can hear what it may have sounded like. It's the bee's knees and just take it from me. There's one thing I want to say. You're going to hear it night and day. Thanks, Teresa. In addition to the cat's pajamas and the bee's knees, Oxford Dictionaries, the Online Etymology Dictionary, and the website PhraseFinder say that phrases such as the flea's eyebrows, the cat's whiskers, the cat's meow, the monkey's eyebrows, the snake's hips, and the canary's tusks were also in use during the 1920s. It appears that using an animal's something to describe a wonderful, excellent, or outstanding thing or person was simply a linguistic trend at the time. So if you ever dress up like a flapper for a costume party and your date says you are the bee's knees, you can properly respond that he is the flea's eyebrows. And I might buy a flapper costume just so I can say that. (laughs) I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find me online on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl, and you can find all my Grammar Girl books at your favorite bookstore. This episode was recorded in the studios at the Reynolds School of Journalism at the University of Nevada, where all my colleagues are the Kipper's Knickers. And the podcast is produced in partnership with Macmillan Holdings, where my partners are the Caterpillar's Kimono. That's all. Thanks for listening. One, two... Three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.